Well, good morning. Um, as uh, Ben said, I'm, uh, my name is David Beakley, and I think I've been here once before, quite a f- number of years back, but I am a Bethany Fellowship uh, missionary, BFC missionary, and uh, <clears throat> essentially was uh, my family uh, and I started coming to Bethany in 1998, so we can legitimately say we were part of the old Bethany, being from last century. And uh, that'll be a good thing for my grandkids and whatnot to talk about. I was, granddad was from the old Bethany of last century. 1998, we actually got saved in that church. Um, and uh, uh, as the Lord would have it, uh, about a year and a half after just being there, when the church was about, oh, about three, 350, 400 people total uh, that was there. And uh, the Lord just convicted me to just... Uh, that I was not in the right place, and I shouldn't be here working in Morton, Illinois, so I left to go to seminary, and after a couple of years of seminary, the Lord saw fit that I should go to Africa, of all places. And so we've been serving in Africa for 12 years as missionaries, training pastors, uh, desperately needed in a country of 40 million people and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of pulpits that need to be filled every Sunday and uh, men who need to know the Word of God. So I've, I've been there and teaching, and, and actually one of your own is, has been with us, was with us for four years, Phil Smith, uh, the youth pastor here. And I'll just tell you, we did the best we could. <laughs> did the best we could. After that, just understand, I, I'm not responsible for anything, but we had a great loss when he left. We had a great loss. Uh, he was extremely energetic with our youth, but more important than that, he was committed uh, to discipleship and committed to the lives of these uh, young men and women who are mostly all from broken families, because that's what's there in Africa, and, and trying to minister to these, these people as well as, as be with us in the church on staff. Uh, so it was a great joy teaching him for four years uh, in our, our university that we have there, and he, now he's back here and he's serving you and, and with you. And so we're pleased to be connected that way. And uh, I'm, I'm extremely, uh, I say it's honored, but it's, it's a great privilege to be here to worship with you and just to be able to actually engage in worship of our Lord Jesus Christ with you together. Um, and I'll try, it's kind of our agreement, I'll, I'll go with the words of David, or not David, but the words of Agur in, in Psalm or in Proverbs 30, I think it is, where he says, I'll try to be not so bad that it's okay having another missionary come here every now and then. <laughs> okay, I'll try to do that, so not to give missionaries a bad name, and try to be not so good that you'll really look forward to Daniel coming in a couple of weeks. So we'll try to hit that middle if we can and, uh, and serve our purposes there. Uh, we will be in the book of 2 Samuel. I need to get you making your way there. I know it'll be pretty easy, 2 Samuel, with its, uh, its sister passage in 1 Chronicles 21, two of your most well-worn books of the Bible, I'm sure, that you can easily find them there. If not, go to your index and look for books that begin with the number 2, and uh, you'll be able to find it. But we, we'll be in 2 Samuel 24. And uh, just to get us into that particular passage, you see the title there is Finding Grace in the Midst of moral confusion, we're in a 
great state of moral confusion today. I live in South Africa. There is all kinds of stuff going on there. It's like living next to a volcano and you just hope every day is going to be okay. Um, there's it's just the statistics are staggering, you know, unemployment of 50, 60 percent. Um, and it, it's kind of like here, they have the real unemployment rate, which is about 50, but the, un, 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 the published rate is about 25 because they count all the people selling fruit on the side of the road as employed. Um, you've got all the corruption, all the crime, all that kind of stuff going on. Um, and everything that happens here from the church side gets there in about three to five years. So whatever was here about five years ago is in full swing over there now. But living there, despite the fact that it could be very uncertain from day to day, both in terms of violence or in terms of finance or anything, you're just happy when the power kicks in and the water turns on. That when I look across through the internet of what's going on here, I'm actually more terrified when I come back. It, it just seems this is a frightening place. I mean, there, there are things that are happening now, especially in our headlines, that I would never have dreamed would be in our headlines. We're, I mean, we're debating about what marriage is. And that's happening in the church. We have all kinds of major issues of which we would say it's transformation, but it's, it's transforming in a way that I would never have believed. It is exceedingly confusing from a moral standpoint here. But I will say after I, I thought about this, that those are just effects. That's not the cause. And I shouldn't be concerned as much about that as much as if we can identify the cause. The cause is something much more personal. Because the cause of what's going on here is the same cause that's happening in Africa. It's the same cause that's happening everywhere. And it would be this. David writes for us in Psalm 19. He says this uh, beginning or the, the middle of verse 9. He says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So David is really showing in Psalm 19 how the Word of God is precious to him. And they're true. And they're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold, yes, than much gold, sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And then David, he really emphasizes this where he says, Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, in keeping the word of God, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. We say this all the time. David is just like us. You know what he's saying here? I am only human. You can't expect me to see what is unseeable. I mean, I cannot achieve your righteousness, O Lord. Who can understand his errors? Equip me of hidden faults. I understand that. 
But that's not our problem. David lists the problem in verse 13 here where he says, Also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Keep back your servant. Keep me from presumptuous sins and let them not rule over me. What is a presumptuous sin? A presumptuous sin is what you know you're going to do before you pray to God. Presumptuous sin is saying, but since I know I'm saved, I will be able to ask for forgiveness for this. So you say it anyway, what you're about to say that you know you shouldn't. Passing information, you shouldn't. Taking what is not yours. Being somewhere you shouldn't be. I'll pray, though. That's a presumptuous sin. You're presuming on God. I know what God's Word says, but... But David says, here's the issue. Let them not rule over me. That's what they do. Because Hebrews tells us about the deceitfulness of sin. Lies that eventually say it becomes your master. And so as we have presumptuous sins in our life that stack one on another, our thinking changes and our acceptance changes. And as culture shifts, which is what's happened over the last decade, in case anybody missed it, we shift with it thinking everything is fine. You see, that's what's happened. Because 40 years ago, there was something called the moral majority. Everything was fine. There was prosperity in America. The personal computer was actually invented in 1980 or so, and off we go. Everything is prosperous. And morality of culture matched morality of the church in the midst of prosperity. And with that prosperity, there was no greater business to make more money than the church. So let's build bigger churches where people are residing in the suburbs with great jobs. And it grows. And we think God is blessing a righteous group of people when they're just holding on to the morality because it is the morality of the culture. And the blessings cause us to think God is pleased. But then morality changes because culture changes. Various shifts adjust and culture changes. And we wonder what happened. Because the church was not going up at the same rate prosperity was going up. The church was going down. But prosperity was masking the problem. Much like you take painkillers to say that I'm actually healed. Presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins, they blind us to what we already know to be true. That's the issue. And that is the moral confusion we find ourselves in. Which end is up? What happened? Who got in control of that? Really? Well, as I have kind of dealt with this passage in 2 Samuel 24 and try to let it marinate on my own heart, see that I'm actually the problem. And now I'm dealing with the consequences of what I've been living and what I've encountered. 
And that's what we'll see David find in 2 Samuel 24. In 2 Samuel 24, David is the king of Israel, has been king for some time, but he's had kind of a rough ride. He was king, but then experienced the great problem when he sinned with Bathsheba. He took one of his best mighty men and had him assassinated, essentially, because he was the husband of the wife that David took. David was thrown out of the kingdom by his own son. Eventually had to come back and take the kingdom after he watched his son die. So he's, he's had some tough times. He had some serious family issues. But prosperity is going. All the enemies are vanquished. The economy's up. The shekel is stronger than before. And now, in the latter part here, we have this interesting story right here about David numbering his people. David numbering his people. And I think I'm going to make an adjustment from the first service. You guys get the benefit of that. I get to call an audible when I do that. That's the advantage of always coming second service. And that is we're not going to read the passage, all 25 verses here right away, because we'll get bogged down in reading 25 verses. My time will be out. They're going to want to kick us out at 1140, and you know how that all goes. Um, so we'll read it as we go, okay? But just giving you the idea of the story so we can hit the important parts. David numbered his people, and specifically he was numbering his army. And this was actually a great sin before God. We'll understand why as we walk through the passage. And it was a great sin to David, and it cost a great deal. But it ended in a way that David saw grace like he never had before and experienced it and actually realized what grace is to achieve. Because that's what we really want. We want to know how to find grace and whether you know it or not, grace actually is supposed to accomplish something, not relief from the past. But grace pushes you somewhere, and you want to be there. And that's what we're going to discover here in 2 Samuel 24. But before we go, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for this body. We thank you for this, this, this group who gather every Lord's Day to hear your word. We thank you for their faithfulness. But mostly, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, what you've done, and that he is worthy to be worshipped and that we are here to worship him and to, to delight in your glory of which you make available to us. We pray, Lord, that the word would become active and alive in our hearts and convicting us and our very souls but Lord, opening our eyes to see what we oftentimes don't see with six days a week getting tarnished by the world and the media and all the culture, all that's coming around us. Open our eyes this morning, Lord, that we would see the Lord of glory, to see your worth, to know that we are children of the living God. So I pray, Father, that you be gracious to us this morning, to meet with us this morning through the preaching of your word 
Lord, might you remove any hindrance from the preacher so that you would speak and we would hear. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we take a look at this idea of finding God's grace in the midst of moral confusion, we're going to spend just a little bit of time identifying this moral confusion. And then we'll figure out how to get grace in the midst of that. And this moral confusion, really, to to help understand it, as we go through, I want to give you this principle. It's going to come back to you. It's going to be, if you don't understand sin, if you do not understand sin, then you do not understand grace. You never will understand grace. You have to understand sin truly for what it is to understand grace. And there's a principle that is true that I live in Africa quite a bit, more so than here in America where things are much more insulated. And that is this, the first principle here of understanding this moral confusion is that the consequences of our sins are always waiting for us. The consequences of our sins are always waiting for us. Verse 1, now again the anger of the Lord burned against David and it incited David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Now, a little bit of walking through the text here. Words are important. One of the key words here is again. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. I can just tell you, the closest place that we know that it had burned against Israel before is chapter 21, when David was experiencing a famine brought by God. He's saying, wait a minute, God. I'm the man that you chose to be king. You're blessing your country. We're in the old covenant. You've given us everything. Why do we have a famine? And he said, it's because of the Gibeonites, which are under covenant. They're under my covenant. And Saul has killed them. Therefore, you are suffering the guilt of breaking that covenant. And so David did what it took to get back in line with God in that. God was angry against Israel. Here we see now again, the anger of the Lord did not burn against David. It burned against Israel. And so, since the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, God didn't do anything to Israel. He did something to David. And He incited David to go number Israel and Judah. You're like, what's going on with that? Well, one thing will help us is 1 Chronicles 27, verse 1, or 21, verse 1, which is the parallel passage, 1 Chronicles 21. Could be one of the first times Chronicles been preached here. Not sure. But in verse 1, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now we have a confusion a little bit here, theological confusion. I thought it was the Lord's anger that burned against Israel. And now we got Satan. Well, one thing to understand is Satan actually works for God. There is no cosmic battle between God and Satan on the earth. And if you see that pictured in Scripture, it's because God dressed Satan up as an enemy and put him out there and said, now stand there and I'm going to knock you down. And you're going to take it. The demons had to ask Jesus, throw us into the pigs. You are our, who are you, son of God? What do we have to do with you? Satan works for God. And here, Chronicles just tells us Satan stood up against Israel to number. Why? 
because God's anger burned against Israel. And so he used Satan as his agent to say, now go make David do this. I'll tell you what, you're in a pretty bad way when God is actually using Satan to ensure that your sin is completed. Because he will do that. Because he's done it many times in Scripture. 1 Kings 22, Micaiah the prophet saw that God used a lying spirit in the mouths of the prophets to incite Ahab to go to war so that he would die. God uses all of his creatures and his creation for his purposes, to accomplish his ends. He himself does not do evil, but he uses evil to bring about his purposes and his good. David has consequences that are out there specifically for Israel. And so we see these consequences are waiting for Israel. How do we know they're waiting for Israel? Because the Lord's anger burned against them. Parents, you know this. Especially if your kids go up, they move, and they go into high school, they go to college. And you want to give them wisdom. But it's amazing how somehow in the children's eyes, the intelligence retardation of parents increases severely we don't know why that is but we've got nothing to offer as our kids grow older but as our kids decide to make decisions or sometimes we make the mistake of thinking they'll get the clue when we say okay you you can do that but i wouldn't and what choice do they make exactly the wouldn't right and so what do parents do right away do we do that no we don't do that what do we say? Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Right? It builds, doesn't it? Consequences are coming. You're going to have to learn this. That's very consistent with what God is doing here. Because when you sin, I know there's grace, and I know there's common grace, and I know that God delivers, but, you know, I've had students church members, they wake up one day, they go to the doctor and they have HIV and they don't know how. Happens. Because you forgot what happened in the past and you thought everything was okay. Or all of a sudden something happened and there's what's prevalent not only here but also in South Africa, but date rape with the drugs and the, in, the, in, the, in the glasses and all that, and you wake up, what just happened? And all of a sudden you find out you're HIV. But then, what were you doing there in the first place here kind of thing? It happens. It happens. The consequences are there. They can be severe. They can be minimal. They can be building up. They're there. Now, our question here is, what's so wrong with numbering Israel? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, a couple of verses I just throw up here to just as we walk through the text. First Chronicles 27. I'll just put it right here for you. David counted initially everybody. When you're supposed to count in the army, anybody who was only 20 years old and older that could draw the sword. Even Joab, it says in verse 24 here, that the son of Zeruiah, Joab had begun to count them but did not finish. 
because as he started, he knew it was wrong, and so wrath came on Israel. So David didn't count like he should have. And this text here tells us that the Lord said he would multiply Israel as the stars of heaven. Don't count the little ones. I'm multiplying Israel. You don't count them. You can count your army, the guys who swing swords. That's fine. Because you have to do military planning. David said, no, I want to know everybody. I want to know who the future army is going to be. There's a pride issue with David, but also in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 and 12, David should have known this from Moses. The Lord also spoke to Moses. He said, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then everybody has to give a ransom for himself to the Lord, and when you number them, so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. The Lord said, if you take a census, you can do it, but it's a half shekel ahead. So that they remember that I delivered you out of Egypt. You don't do that, there's going to be a plague to cut your people back. You see? God made it real clear. You always remember that I delivered you and I am your God and you are my people. David's not remembering Moses here. I wonder how long it took for him to forget Moses. Presumptuous sins. That's a census. I mean, that was back in Moses' day when it was real important to be really obedient to the very critical kind of Mosaic law stuff. I mean, now we're so complex as a society. I mean, we got Philistines down in the Southwest. We got the guys in Tyre and Sidon up there. I'm always dealing with the people from Moab. I mean, you know how it is. It's, you got to kind of factor that in to what Moses is saying. The anger burned. Now, just to point you to the verse here, but there's actually one other factor in here that could be another factor. Joab, who, by the way, knows it's a sin, says so in verse 3. He says, don't do this thing. Joab knows it's a sin. The king's commanders knows it's a sin in verse 4. Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders. But Joab is counting everybody from Dan to Beersheba. But look at verse 7. He counted the people from Tyre, the Hivites, the Canaanites. He counted everybody. Wait a minute. I thought this was Israel. Yeah, David says, well, everybody, you know. David's not considering what God's word says about something so important. And so this anger burns. It, it was such a long process Verse 8 tells us it took nine months and 20 days. That's, that's a lot of people. They, they counted 800,000 from Israel and 500,000 from Judah. Well, it would take nine months and 20 days for guys on horseback to count that many people. So they did. But you, you want to know what happened? With this, God knew this was a sin. First Chronicles 21 verse 7 tells us that God was displeased greatly with what David had done. And so he gave David a choice here of the punishments, and David chose a pestilence. I'll explain that in a minute. But here's the point. In verse 15, this is what happened. The Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. That means the, the appointed time of the sacrifice. That means about 5 o'clock. So from the morning till about 5 o'clock, now remember, just back a few verses, it's three days of a pestilence. 
Three days of a plague. Three days of nothing you can do about it. And now it's from morning until just the afternoon time. 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. 70,000 people died. 70,000 people woke up in the morning, had breakfast, went about their day, and didn't go to bed that night. 70,000 people never saw their kids the next day. They never saw it coming. 70,000. And certainly this congregation understands what happens when the finger of God just shows up. Because we've seen it in South Africa on YouTube. When a tornado rips through Washington, Illinois, and nobody saw it coming a few hours earlier. Now the grace we're talking about here, as we get to it, just so you know, is not the grace that Washington, Illinois experienced. That's common grace, where all of a sudden a weather pattern hits, and it rips through Washington, and only a few die when it could have taken the entire region. That's common. That's God's common grace. You've experienced that. In David's situation here, 70,000 people died just like that because the anger of the Lord burned against them and now it's the time. That's a reality. Beloved, that's a reality that the consequences of our presumptuous sins are being stored up. It's throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. This is not the God of the Old Testament. Now we've got a God of the New Testament. Both the Old and the New say our God is a terrible fire. He's a consuming fire. If you have any doubts about it, just look what happened at A.D. 70. Christians flattened. So, we see the consequences of our sin are always right in front of us. To this tune right here, 70,000 can just be taken out in a heartbeat. Secondly, principle here, God's grace is always available in the midst of His judgment. God's grace is always available in the midst of His judgment. This is a truth that we are thankful for, praise God for, and we presume upon. God's grace is always available in the midst of His judgment. Look at the availability right here in verse 16. The availability of the grace... Because up to now, it's just judgment. It's just consequences. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of around the Jebusite. So we have this angel of the Lord, which is exceedingly important, which we'll identify in a moment, with his sword drawn he just killed 70,000. He's going back for 70,000 more in Jerusalem. And the Lord says, stop. We're not even through the first day yet. And he says, stop. How is this possible? Well, the answer, I, well, one question you want to ask is, it says right here, and I don't want to spend much time on it, but the Lord relented from his calamity. 
The Lord was sorry, it says in 1 Chronicles. How can, how can God do this? How can God just all of a sudden stop and still be God? Well, the pretty simple explanation is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Moses wants to know who God is. And he says, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord passed by in front of him and says, I am the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. I am both. I am both. Psalm 99, verse 8. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. You are both. God is a God who judges, and God is a God of grace. And both are on display at the same time. Just give you this picture. The angels were created out of nothing. And when they were created, they sang for joy. From nothing to something. Whoosh! Just like that. It's amazing. And then man was created out of the dust of the earth. That's a pretty good thing too. Not as good as the angels, but pretty good. There he is. There's man. Amazing. And the angels are singing for joy. But then man does something. He sins. And the angels... In that moment in the garden, all looked and went, <gasps> why? Because now they're under the wrath of God. And Jesus said about Judas, it is better for that man to have never been born than to be who he is. Well, what does it mean to never been born? Well, if, if you've never been born, you're zero. Because if you've been born, you're plus one. <laughs> so if you've never been born, you're zero. Because if you're born, you're something. Like angels were now something from nothing. But if you are worse than if you've ever been born, what are you? You are less than nothing, aren't you? You're less than zero. Less than if you've been born. But you know what the angels also saw? they saw God reach down to man and take his enemy, Romans 5, verse 8 tells us, and doesn't just make him back to something, but makes him a son, an heir, heirs with Christ, Romans 8 tells us. And 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that we will judge angels, which means we are now higher than angels because we're sons and daughters of God. So we actually went from less than nothing to more than something, which is kind of hard to understand. But you guys are the second service crowd. I should probably handle this stuff now. That's why God's grace is on display, because in doing that, it carries on for eternity. Because grace is not grace unless it comes in the midst of judgment. If there's no judgment, there's no grace. And for you guys, I didn't do this for the first crowd as well, but for you guys, the actual word for relent here in Hebrew is comfort. God comforted himself from the calamity which he was going to do here to the people in Jerusalem. 
Why? Because God comforts himself when he judges and he comforts himself in grace. Because that's when those two meet and God is on display at the whole of all of time and eternity is on display at the whole time. It's found in the cross of Jesus Christ where sin is being judged eternally, but so is grace being given eternally to us simultaneously. Two rivers coming together. That's who God is. So the principle we're looking for here is even though God's grace is available, it's not applied to everybody. That's the mystery we have. Why is grace not applied to everybody? It should be. Why is it not? And it is this. God's grace in His judgment is always and only applied to those who are pursuing righteousness. What does it mean to pursue righteousness? That's what we're going to find out in the next last 10 minutes of the sermon right there. But God's grace is not just given. Common grace, sure, that's, that's, that's the mystery of God, how things happen. People live in the middle of disasters. But this particular grace where His consequences of sin are stored up and applied to people, how does that grace apply? How do we get it? Do we just say, Lord, can you give me grace? Because God is a God of passion. And the Kind of the most vivid picture I could give, which is frightening and heavy, is we know that God is a loving God. We know He cares for widows and orphans. But listen to this verse in Isaiah 9. Therefore, the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does He have pity on their orphans or their widows. God is a God who tramples orphans and widows when he says, for every one of them is a godless and an evildoer. Just because of your state, God does not have pity. But at the same time, God looks out for the orphans and widows. Don't mess with them. <laughs> Don't mess with them. Because God is passionate to judge those who reject who he is. And he is passionate with the fury to save and redeem and give grace to those who just turn and look to Him. Same fury both ways. He'll kill 70,000 and then say, Stop! Whew. That's like a locomotive going at the fastest full throttle rate you can. All of a sudden, you just stop and the whole train buckles. That's who our God is. How do we get this grace? How do we do that? Here it is, in the time we have left. We just presented the moral confusion. Now let's take a look at how you get this grace in the midst of it. Number one, found in verses 10 and verse 17. You acknowledge who God is and who we are. Pretty simple concept. But it's basically through your conviction and your confession. But look at David here in verse 10. David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. You see, the issue with this numbering the people, you don't really have to know specifically what he did wrong or right. What you have to know is Joab knew it was a sin. He said so. The commanders of David knew it was sin. They said so. David knew it was a sin right here. His heart troubled him. And in 1 Chronicles 21 verse 7, God knew it was a sin. I think that makes it pretty clear it was a sin. It basically went against God's command. His heart King James Version, smote him. Just like that. That's conviction. Conviction is when you are convicted 
which by the way, that's the gift of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, the, don't you know the kindness of God leads you to repentance by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. Like I said, if you don't understand what sin is, you don't understand what grace is. You cannot accept God's grace unless you understand what sin is. You can't understand sin unless you've been convicted of it. You say, oh my. So David said, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. So he was convicted in verse 10, which means he now is stricken. He's pained. He begins to understand the worth of God. And then David spoke to the Lord, verse 17, when he saw the angel who was striking down and said, it is I who have sinned, it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Not, not them, me. But the, God's anger burned against Israel. And what's David saying? I understand, Lord, you use my sin to trigger your wrath against them. Now think about that concept for a moment. Yes, you're right. You're right. America is awash in confusion. We don't understand what marriage is. Sanctity of life. What is the holiness of God in churches? What's the value of Scripture? All of these things. We can just go down and make a list. Have you thought that God is going to use your sin to be the trigger point for the judgment on everybody? Because that can happen. Have you thought about that? It's not you and God standing together accusing them. It's God saying you and them. And yes, you're right. Their sin is overshadowing. And let's use your sin today to be the trigger point. That's what happened. David says, oh no. Let them be. I'm the one who had the real sin here. I did. In the midst of their moral confusion, it's my sin that's the issue. Because repentance is this. Just try to get these few concepts in the short time we have. Repentance is such a bad word on television. It's a bad word in the media. It's a bad word on everybody who hates the church. You know, Baptists use the word repent. They bang their Bibles. Repent. Repentance is this. It's only one thing. It's never looking back on your sin, but it's running hard after that which you love most. That's repentance. Repentance is, is every time I... I I used to have a Labrador, and I, when he knew it was breakfast, you know, we're, I'm, I'm getting the dog food for breakfast, that dog is, he's repenting. <laughs> he's repenting for breakfast, big time. And he was happy to do it. Repentance leads to joy. There's more joy in heaven when one sinner repents. Why? Because there's such great joy. You're running hard after what you want. In 1982, July 31st, I repented to my wife and have been repenting ever since. Acknowledge who God is and who we are by conviction and by confession. You are repenting to Him. That will get clarity in this confusion. Secondly, seek out and obey His word of instruction. Seek out and obey His word of instruction. Verse 18, Gad came to David that day and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of around the Jebusite. Gad the prophet came to David and said, Now here's what you're supposed to do. And actually Gad got the word from the angel of the Lord. Here's what you're supposed to do. Go make an altar. That altar is exceedingly important. And we'll basically close with that. But here's the point, the simple application point. You seek out God's Word and obey it because that's what David's been presuming on. That's what David's been discounting. Simple application point. To read the Bible through in one whole year, 74 hours, 
You pop in the CDs, 74 hours. Divided by 365, that's 12 minutes a day. 12 minutes a day, and you can actually hear from your God about what He has said objectively for us to do and to know Him and to say, who is He like? I had no idea that Satan actually worked for God. I have no idea that consequences of our sins are stored up and God is weighing them. I had no idea that that's happening. Yeah, I know, it's right here. You wouldn't know that, would you? Unless you're reading God's Word and saying, this is important. 12 minutes a day of a little bit of worship you could have, and that will help provide the clarity you need about what's going on in this world today. Thirdly, you need to be willing to pay any and all costs of obedience. Look at verse 24. In making this altar, the, the guy who owned it, Arauna, the Jebusite, he saw David the king. He said, hey, take it all. Take my oxen. Take the sleds. Take everything. Take the wood. It's yours. David said, no way. The king said to Arauna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, which cost me nothing. That's our problem. Church doesn't cost anything in our minds. Our worship of God doesn't cost. And it must. It must. Now you ask, what are you talking about? It must cost you what your flesh desires. Your flesh does not desire to worship the living God. You know how I know that? Because if we said, let's all get together and pray for half an hour, how many are going to fall asleep? <laughs> I'd be the first one. Don't pray at night. That's the first sin unto death, right? <laughs> let's pray together at night. I'm done. Why is it only prayer? Because if it's anything else, you're okay. <laughs> it's because, folks, you're under attack by your flesh. Romans chapter 8, the flesh is at hostility with God. you got to fight it. And you got to be willing to pay what it costs. David said, I'll pay whatever it takes. I'll pay 50 shekels for the altar, and I'll pay 600 shekels for the piece of land. That's the whole thing. Pay anything for that. Here's the last point I want to give you because we're out of time. The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. Anytime you see the angel of the Lord, it's Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. What you have here is the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, actually killing 70,000 people in Jerusalem whose hand was stopped by God and then commanded David to build the altar on the very spot where Solomon built Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, the temple, where our Lord was crucified. What's the solution? What does grace look like? David, build an altar to worship me because I'm going to go down and I'm going to be crucified to die for your sins. I am the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That's what I'm going to do. Build the altar. You have no idea what's coming. You think it's you did something, you got to pay for it. I'm paying for it. I'm paying for it with my life. You just need to build the altar. That's what's going on here. And it is when that happened, is when the altar was built and the sacrifice was given, God was satisfied, Chronicles tells us, and the angel then put his sword back in the sheath when that was done. And then verse 25, thus the Lord was moved by prayer for the land 
and the plague was held back from Israel. Do you want your prayers for what's going on in the land to be effective? Would you like that? I'd love for our prayers to actually be effective by God to what's going on that I don't like. Do you want that to happen? Here's how it happened for Israel, but it took some alignment to get clarity and moral confusion through an understanding of confession, through an understanding of obedience and sacrifice. Just this last slide, I'll throw it up there. God is moved to bless and protect His people with grace. God desires to bless and protect. I know the first part of the sermon was heavy and weighty and man, it's scary. I know that, but here's the truth. God desires, He is jealous to bless and protect His people with grace. He loves grace because His Son is involved with that. And He desires to move and act on behalf of His people for His glory. You draw near to God this way, prayers are effective. When you think rightly about God's righteousness, you act rightly from His Word, and you value rightless, rightly His true worth because you come here not because there's a great preaching, not because there's great singing, not because there's good community, not because, hey, we got a good church we can come to. That's not why you come here. You come here to worship because He is worthy to be worshiped. And it's what He has paid. That's why we're here. That's the only reason we're here. And with that, we truly find the joy He has waiting for us as we repent to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You for David. Thank You for showing us even the picture right here. So long ago, Your Son was continually showing us His eagerness to get to the cross. 